Hey y'all, welcome back to the next episode of the Culture Eats Everything podcast. Spoke with Chris Timmis today, the superintendent of the Dexter Public Schools. I've only known Chris for a couple months now, but he's very real and very genuine. And I think people relate to that so quickly that it makes him a great leader. We covered a lot of topics, including his amazing turnaround of a school district that went from the bottom 10 percentile to the top 90th percentile. Talked about risk and how do you create a a vision and an urgency for a turnaround like that? How do you grow your people? And he talks about the value of executive coaching, which I really appreciate, especially in the education context, because I don't think enough school districts take advantage of it. Talked about vulnerability, personalized learning. He has a great analogy for personalized learning for those of you who don't know uh, that I think will resonate. And wraps up with his book recommendation, which is, uh, which is a great book called The Dark Horse by Todd Rose. So thanks for joining us today. Chris Timmis, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so you're the superintendent of Dexter Public Schools in Michigan, and I just learned a few minutes ago that you and I were both school superintendents at the ripe old age of 34. So oh. I'd love to I'd love to start there and just get your thoughts on what was that like for you? Because I know for me it was exciting and terrifying. Yeah, mine was kind of a whirlwind. Um, I had left the classroom at around 30 and become a curriculum director in another district. And then they turned through three superintendents in my two years there. And um, at one point I was curriculum director, high school principal and doing some other things. And I was worried they were gonna make me the superintendent. So I took a high school principal job in the district that I lived in. And within a few months, the current, or the superintendent at the time came to my office and said, I'm gonna retire. And uh, I found my replacement. And I said, great, sounds awesome. And he said, uh, so are you, um, you curious who that replacement is? And I'm like, no, I trust you. You've been great to work for. He's like, no, that replacement's you. And um, so I had been an administrator for three years before I became a superintendent. And I ended up having to lead a complete transformation and turnaround of the district because we were broke. We were one of the persistently lowest achieving school districts. Um, it was, we had problems. And when I left, we were, uh, things were great. We had put away millions of dollars, we went from no fund balance to a, to a stable fund balance. And we raised academics with a high school, for example, from the 3.7th percentile to the 91st um, in the ranking. So we were, uh, it was kind of a whirlwind. It was the most rewarding and hardest period of my life. It's been my first year. I started technically in July and my son was born in October. So um, I became a parent and a superintendent all around the same time. And it was, uh, it was like drinking out of a fire hose, but I, we had a great team of people that I worked with and we were able to do some incredible work. So would never, never, I, there's no regret to starting that early. Um, but it was, it was fascinating. I think uh, it'd be harder to do when you're older 
And um, in that kind of situation, if I was older and more life experienced, my risk tolerance wouldn't have been quite the same. What do you mean by that? So in order to do that kind of work with that significant turnaround, like when I took over, we had $139,000 in our fund balance on a $40 million budget. And for those um, of you who don't know, fund balance is basically the cash you have in the bank, sort of your, yeah. we don't call it profit education, but you could think of it that way. Yeah. So we, and we only had that because we sold the building for half a million dollars. So we were upside down. Um, and we were losing kids. We we're funded per kid. Our, we had every kind of problem you could ever imagine. I mean, dealing with embezzlements and all kinds of problems. And um, so to, I think if I were, if I wasn't young and naive, I would have probably gone, okay, I'm out. But instead I was young, kind of competitive and going, no, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. I live here. We're going to fix this. And just dug in and had the energy to work the 70 and 80 hour a week work weeks to get it done. I love that young and naive. I wish we were, I wish we could hold on to that really through life, frankly, because yeah. it serves, it tends to serve leaders well in many ways. I, I think of myself, we opened two of the top 100 most innovative schools in Detroit. Um, well in the country, but we had two of them. Um, and a lot of that was because of my naivete, you know, I just, said, why can't we do, why can't we do this differently? Why can't we do this better? Um, and you're right. It's, there's something about human nature that has us seeking more stability and less risk as we get older, maybe that uh, probably not a good thing. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. You know, I would say, I mean, but there are some people that are wired this way. I still have a pretty high risk tolerance, but I'm more savvy with it. Um, so when I see something that is pretty risky, I know, you build equity, spend equity, build equity, spend equity, where early on I was just spend, spend, spend. So now I can uh, kind of navigate that wave. You're not racking up credit card debt and, and uh, yeah, well, in equity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. In political right. equity. All right. Well, that's a phenomenal. I mean, to, to go from that sort of really um, almost non-existent fund balance to a solid fund balance. What were the education results again? Um, the high school moved from the 3.7th percentile to the 91st percentile in the state in the rankings. We, uh, we raised every building. We had um, seven buildings. Five of them were in the top 5% in the state for academic growth for multiple years in a row. Nationally, our academic growth, when we look at like um, uh, one of the assessments that you can use, you can norm nationally. We're in the 95th percentile in reading and math growth, and we created all kinds of really unique programming. So it wasn't just drill and kill content. We created really incredible programming. Um, we are doing international baccalaureate online courses with schools over when students all over the world. Um, we we're one of four schools in the world that could offer online IB classes to anyone. We had kids in the uh, Middle East and South America, in Japan, and then right in Michigan taking classes together. Um, we had all kinds of great programming we put together. Wow, that's amazing. And what sort of time frame did you guys do all that? Five years. Wow. We really did it in about three. What's the secret? So for young leaders out there, maybe a brand new superintendent looking to bring that sort of radical change to their district, what would you tell them? Yeah, you, you need a compelling vision. 
and you have to develop some form of sense of urgency. So you have to be able to articulate a vision that others can understand and know what their role is in that vision. So for example, a superintendent's role in the vision is very different than a bus driver's role. A teacher has a role, their role in the vision in the elementary is different than the high school's role in the vision. So you have to know what your role is and understand and clearly articulate that vision. And then you need to figure out how to get balance in the work. So if you're trying to innovate within a school district, school districts were designed on manufacturing principles to be able to mass produce. So you have to understand that organizational structure, but then understand how to work within that structure to be creative and to provide opportunities and pathways. So you talking edu speak, I mean, if you're talking education, you have to have a clear instructional model that every teacher and every principal and every kid and everybody in the organization understands. Then you have to try to build your capacity internally. So you have to grow your people. And if you can't grow who you have, as every time you go to hire, you need to hire people that can bring something new to the organization and then figure ways to foster and grow those individuals. I use a lot of executive coaches with our tech, with our staff. I build uh, instructional coach models. We build these cadres. We build these cohorts either in district or with other districts or nationally. Um, as you speak wise, you build supports for students. And then the biggest thing is you have to create new opportunities. And what I find is that often when new leaders get in there, they're just figuring out how to manage the organization and, or they're creating these like one-off non-strategic new opportunities. And what happens is if you're not really looking at completely reforming the organization, you're actually shortchanging all the kids because the model never worked for all kids. It wasn't designed to work for all kids. So you have to continue to create opportunities so that every kid has a, has a chance to grow. Um, and if you don't, like the one superintendent that hired, the guy that hired me at that district and then um, retired soon after, his, uh, his line you say, he goes, if you stop growing and changing, you start dying. So, and he was right. You have to continue to grow and keep the foot on the pedal. Yeah, there is no, there is no static plateau. If you're, if you're coasting, that means there's only way to coast and that's downhill. Yep. <laughs> And if you're not helping your people grow, I think that's so fundamental to, to building a solid team and a solid culture that I love that. It's one of the things that we, we believe so strongly in that the number one job of a leader is to help their people grow. You know, it's, it's so simple, but, but not easy. So how do, you, how do you do that? How do you help people grow? So I tend to push myself as a leader. I find that and I think Tim Quinn said it in one of his books, um, and I think it was in Deep Change. What Tim Quinn said was that leaders, for organizations to truly change, the leader has to change. So I demonstrate it myself on changing my, my style, changing my skill sets, growing with our people. I take our leadership teams and um, we learn together, but we also, I, offer any of our building leaders and district leaders executive coaching outside of the district. And the way we set up coaching is a little different. They 
we will pay for the coaching. We pay a flat fee for X number of hours of time. All I want is the bill. I never want to know what they're working on. Never. It is their work is with them and the coach. And what I find is that little bit of support creates some tremendous growth. Then we set up cadres of, um, depending on where the organization is at the time, we set up cadres of staff that can want to be, grow their leadership or grow their skill set. We set up these little learning communities. Sometimes we'll bring in an external consultant to run it. Sometimes we run it ourselves. We do book a lot of uh, community reads or book studies, but we do them a little different. What we'll do is we'll offer multiple books free to any staff member. So we have about 570 employees. Whenever we offer books, we're distributing three to 400 of each book. So we get a pretty good number of people. And then we'll just set up like after school times at a local restaurant or uh, or a bar or at a library and that whoever wants to come in and talk. We're doing a community book read right now using uh, doing uh, asynchronous and synchronous um, book study. So we've offered we offer these books to the community and we end up what happens is you're able to share if you pick books strategically you're able to share the vision parts of the reasons and the whys for the vision of the organization without making them sit in a meeting and then you're able to invest in people and what i found so i changed districts about eight and a half years ago and um, brought I think 10 people from that last district have moved to this district, to Dexter. And we were in the first district, we were cutting salaries. We were, we were broke. I, it was awful. And we were doing great work, but we were broke. What happened though, I have 10 people who I personally negotiated their pay cuts at their last district who have come here. Mm. And it's because we invest in people. And we, we allow them to grow. We give them autonomy but also structure. Hmm. Uh, um, so much in what you said that I love because it's the work that, that Brad and I do um, and have been doing for a long time, especially around, you know, helping people grow. And a lot of people think that's one thing or it's another thing, or maybe it's um, executive coaching. And, and we look at it as like executive coaching is just one piece of it. It's one tool in the toolkit to help your people grow, but it's not, it's not everything. And frankly, there's a lot of coaching out there that's not very good, um, in our opinion. I'm just curious, what do you think about that? And what would you tell a, a superintendent who's kind of on the fence about whether executive coaching is worth it or not? Um, if they get the right coach, coach, it's worth it, but they also have to be open to the coaching. Um, and what I, the thing, so I coach some newer soups who are actually older than I am, which is really fascinating. Um, and the most fascinating part about it is some that I work with, they're really open. They want to be, co they want coaching. They want, they really want that personal accountability. I find people that were into athletics or into some kind of performance, they type activity when they were younger, it is exactly the way they responded when they were kids that, they didn't need someone yelling at them. They just needed the accountability to themselves that they were going to have to go and compete or go and 
have to explain to someone else that they already said they were going to follow through on something. Um, and you're not even telling them to follow through, but I found others that they can't manage the day to day. They haven't gotten their feet under them and they don't realize they're never going to get their feet under them. If they don't take time to sit back and think about how to prioritize and what, what is really going to leverage the change. And it's the vulnerability of it all. Um, knowing that the coach isn't going to tell you what to do. They're just going to ask the right questions because you already have the answer. You just need it to be brought out in your head. So speaking of vulnerability, it's all the rage now um, with Brene Brown. Um, we like to think of it as just being open, which can feel vulnerable, but that nobody really wakes up in the morning saying, oh boy, I can't wait to be vulnerable today. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't happen, at least in my experience. So um, do you have an example for yourself, Chris, where a coach really kind of had you think about something and you had this huge aha in your life? Um, over the years I've had, so I have found I respond really well to female coaches and I don't know why. Um, but it's almost like my mother was asking me the right questions or something. And what I find I've had some times where almost as a defense mechanism, and maybe it's common for many leaders and especially male leaders to kind of write off that you're not really, you care about people, but you care about the organization. So sometimes when you're in I think back to the time when I was cutting budgets, I had to stop looking at the people and look at the, the line items and just figure out what we had to do. But I've had coaches help talk me through how to balance the caring about everyone, but to do it thoughtfully and not as a, not as just a survival mechanism of shutting down the emotion part that you can still have the emotion and you can still feel bad but also do what the organization needed you to do. And it finding that balance and realizing it, we're a people like in education, we're a people business and really it's how well you can take care of people. And I've had people overall, after I'm working with coaches, when I first got going, I fired people that still call and check in. <laughs> it is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, cause you love them. It's what I, I, I hate to put it. So, so starkly, but it seems like I would imagine that people love working for you because they feel like they're getting the truth. And sometimes it's not always easy. Sometimes you got to make really, really hard decisions as a, as a leader, but as long as you're doing that with the right sort of spirit and, and energy and sort of caring for the other person, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, even though you are a, a physically intimidating sort of person, um, and, uh, but, but what I would imagine is that comes through to your team is like, wow, Chris really cares. He's, he's here. He's in it to win it. He's here for the right reasons. Yeah, I hope it does. <laughs> Actually, it generally does. I find, um, I find being really authentic helps. I mean, you have what you have to do when you're in a public presentation and how you have to talk. And then you have the conversations as you build teams that you could sit in a room and really be authentic and have people push back, et cetera. And then you build your norms of how you're going to function that when the door is closed, you say whatever you got to say. When we leave, we're all on the same page. We're going to decide what page that is. Mm -hmm. And a great, it won't necessarily be my page. There's a great, okay. uh, great Colin Powell quote about that. I'll get it. I'll get it wrong, but it's something in the neighborhood of when we're in a meeting, loyalty means disagreeing. When we leave the meeting, loyalty means executing that decision that we all made together. 
as if our life depended on it. Yep, that is great. That is great. Speaking of quotes, um, uh, I know you're a BB King fan, and so wanted to get your reaction to this one. He said, "The beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it away from you." Yeah. Well, and I'm. I wouldn't say I'm a BB King fan, but I do. I do go to a lot of concerts, and I want to see all the legends while they're still performing. So I saw BB King like 10, 15 years ago. And he was on the list. I had to see him while he was still performing and it was well worth it. Um, so that quote, when I think about it, really fits uh, the approach that I've been trying to do with schools is really to try to personalize learning for kids because you can't take it away from what from them. I mean, what the B.B. King quote about the beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it away from you. If you personalize learning for kids, they have that knowledge. And then what happens in that social construction of meaning is they're sharing that knowledge with others and crafting it for themselves. It becomes so part of them. And um, that's what we're supposed, that's what we need to do in schools. And we need to foster more often because we've created this system. It, it, probably the last 20 years, it's hit the peak because of the accountability measures that were put in place with test scores, et cetera. And kids aren't numbers. People aren't numbers that it's and all information is so available. Now I, my neighbor says all the time that he could perform open heart surgery because of YouTube. Um, there is so much information out there and ways to learn. And that is how we become unique individuals. And we need to figure out how to celebrate that uniqueness in everyone for the betterment of everyone. You, the personalization, I, I know a lot about it because that, that was the, the two schools we opened, by the way, um, that were rated by the Gates Foundation. And we got a lot of money from them because of that, because they were personalized. But for a lot of people, they don't know what that means. So what, is, what does personalized education mean? So we look at it, we have a nice definition and I'll just hit aspects of it. So if you want to truly personalize learning, the whole class, every kid in the class can't go at the same pace, at the same depth, at the same time. Kids have different interests. They are able to grab onto information and subjects at different rates, and they have passions. So it is kids need to have agency. They need to be able to have voice and choice about their learning. They need to be able to work at their own pace and get the right supports at the exact time they need it. Not waiting until they fail a test to be able to get tutoring. You know before that, that the student is struggling in this area. So the supports are on-time supports, real-time supports. They need to be able to find a passion and follow their passions and be able to make it really authentic. Um, what I see in our goal is we wanna be able to figure out, we're getting closer and closer every year, that kids, we know what kids need in order to have a comprehensive education. But why do we offer every class in the same chunk of time at the same time? And when you think about it, I, one of the best examples I've ever heard was thinking about a freshman phys ed class. So if you want to identify what personalized learning look, really looks like in a freshman PE class, if you had a 14-year-old boy that weighed hundred pounds. And then you had another 14 year old boy that was six foot two and 180 pounds. In no world would you expect those two kids to lift the exact same amount of weight on day one. 
you would figure out where they're at and figure out how they can grow individually based on who they are. And that's personalizing learning. That's great. I love that. I love that. I was the, the, the latter kid, I think, no, the former kid. (laughs) Um, I always joked when I played, I played soccer and lacrosse and a little bit of basketball, but um, whenever I scored a goal in lacrosse, I never actually saw the goal because, <laughs> because I was being put on my, my butt, um, usually after a shot. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, um, uh, I know you've got a son. So if you think about your son and your grandkids and their grandkids, sort of, you know, you think about this in a much bigger context of a hundred years from now, maybe, and we're both gone, you know, what, What's your dream for education? What's the future that you'd love to see come to fruition? Yeah, I would like to see us truly change. And I'm saying this as someone who has a doctorate. We need to change this degree system and make it so you can upskill and credential in a different way so that it's not you learn it and then you're an expert and you're good for life. That it is lifelong learning, but you're not having to go constantly for what we have traditionally defined as classes and pieces of paper on these long spans. I I really see the world is changing so quickly and the skill sets are changing so quickly that we need to find a way to create a system that is more nimble and that kids and adults can navigate within it to get their own trainings and learning with each other to be able to do whatever is next. I mean, if you think about with AI and what's gonna happen with professions like legal and accounting, AI can do some of that work, but there's still gonna be people that need to do something different. They're gonna have to upskill. I look at, we take, I look at just teachers. So somehow we have created this model where you go to high school, you then go to college for four years or five, and then we put you in a classroom and consider you've learned everything you're supposed to learn. But then as, then when you get into the job, you have to relearn so many, so many other ways of teaching and doing the job. Every profession has it, but why should you have to go back and pay for degrees for it? We need to have a quicker system. We've toyed with micro-credentialing and badging and I don't know if you always need a trophy or a certificate to show it, but there's a way to demonstrate skill and to do that at your own pace, but also be pushed into where you can try new things. So it's not that you become an expert of one thing forever. You still, there is, I went to a liberal arts undergrad. It was a great experience. There there are benefits to society for people to be well-rounded, but it doesn't have to happen in the same amount of time for the same amount of money for every person. We have to figure out a more nimble system. And that's what I would like to see for my own kid eventually and grandkids, great grandkids is a more nimble, nimble system. Yeah. Well, we're the, one of the great um, lessons of leader learning is that we have to keep learning, you know, to get away from this mindset of, well, I've got my degree. So therefore I'm good to go. Um, I think I, I think you see this, especially with folks who, no offense, but have PhDs. It's sort of this, call me doctor, I'm an expert. And, and for, a lot of, for a lot of folks like that, they've, it's almost like they're done learning. And it's, I think it's sad because especially in education, if you're not continuing to learn, 
then you're not modeling, you're not being the whole point of education. You know, you're, 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 you're being almost hypocritical to what the kids need to see. Um, I always think about it in the terms of, of social and emotional learning, SEL, where we teach kids curriculum. We, we sort of tell them how to be socially, emotionally aware, but the adults oftentimes aren't being it. You know, the, the, the teachers are backfighting and they're talking, talking about each other, maybe in the, um, in the teacher's lounge, or they're just not, they're, they're behaving in ways that aren't terribly um, uh, in line with social emotional learning. And so we wonder why the kids are saying, well, wait a minute, you're, you're telling us to be this way. How come we're not seeing more of that behavior? But what well, do you- some of that though, is you think about, and I have to remind myself all the time, people only complain because they care. So you have to figure out what the root of it is. Sometimes people are venting, but it's really because they care about the organization. They care about the profession and they just haven't found a more positive way to channel it. Or sometimes we are all guilty. We need to vent. We get it out. That's not how we really felt. We just needed to say it. Now we're good. Mm -hmm. um, but making sure that it doesn't impact the core functions of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it as it always does, Chris, the time is flying by here. So maybe um, we can wrap up with um, any thoughts you have for, uh, again, future leaders out there that are looking to become a, a school superintendent or maybe a, a CEO of an organization. You know, what, what advice would you give them? And then we can wrap up with a, with a book recommendation that you have. All right. Yes. Yeah, so when I look back, one of the things, having gone through the doctoral program, and finish that up. I learned a ton about organizational theory and organizational development and change. I find a lot of people who are going into being superintendents, they forget what they learned in terms of how organizational change works. And there are some simple models. Like I am a big believer in um, Tim Quinn's competing values framework. Having just a simple model you can refer to, to either help push your thinking or to kind of question your thinking on what you're working on, moving from that theoretical to reality back and forth. I find that's a key piece of being effective as a superintendent. And what I worry about is when I see a lot of uh, people that are interested in being a superintendent, they understand management, but they really haven't thought about it at the broader scale and taken what they learned in some of their classes and figured out how to apply it or relearn something. And it's simple as reading just the, the right book and going, oh, that makes sense. Um, and as far as book recommendations, Todd Rose has a book called The Dark Horse. And it is probably one of the best reads I've had in years. And what he does is he identifies, and it's a fascinating approach, he really looks at fulfillment. So we live in this country under this adage that you will get this degree or get this job and then you'll be happy. Instead of these are the things that make people happy. So he tells these stories of these dark horses, people that have com done complete career changes and why they're happy and feel fulfilled. And then relates that to how people are truly fulfilled. It's a fascinating read. I mean, it has to do with um, knowing your micro motives, so knowing why you like what you like. So for example, you said you played lacrosse. You didn't, it wasn't lacrosse you liked. It was something about the game. It might've been the 
team sport aspect. It might it, there was something about it. And then knowing your strategies, what works for you, knowing your options, and then don't start with the end in mind. That enjoy the journey. If you're mm-hmm. going to really be fulfilled, enjoy the journey. And I think that's important for people that want to be superintendents is we often think our job is to get a kid a diploma and set them up for this great life. We need to let kids enjoy the journey and we need to let adults enjoy the journey and teach them, teach them the micromotives, teach them strategies, teach them how to navigate choices and know that really we can't take that diploma piece as serious as we do because we think back to high school, you didn't know who at 17 was going to be happy and successful. And nor do we as superintendents and school as educators. We're, our job is to give them a set of skills so that they have a chance to be successful and yeah. happy and feel fulfilled. Yeah, I love that. Especially the fulfilled part. You know, I think to me, happiness is pretty elusive. Um, yeah. You know, I think... And it's different for different people, but being fulfilled is something that we can help kids get a better, better take on. I think you just made all the Covey fans out their heads explode by saying, don't begin with the end in mind. Um, so we'll, we'll have to have a whole nother podcast on that subject. <laughs> well, t- Chris, this has been awesome. I appreciate your time. Um, uh, and God bless you for the work you're doing with the kids and the community out in Dexter and just keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.